Hello and welcome to the Friday, March 3rd, 2023 edition of the Sands and its Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich and today I'm recording from Jacksonville, Florida. Didier today continued his task to come up with ways to detect malicious OneNote files. And well, of course, the reason we keep talking about OneNote files is because attackers continue to use them to deliver malware after Microsoft did limit what can be done with other Office formats. In order to deliver their malicious content using OneNote files, an attacker has to embed a file into the OneNote file. Now, a popular harmless embedded file type that you may find in OneNote files are images. If you are trying to find malicious OneNote files, a good idea is to look for OneNote files that have embedded files that are not images. But of course, in addition to that, they may contain some harmless images as well. And that's uh, what Didier here accomplished with uh, Yara rules, Yara, the open source uh, detection language. And essentially all he did here was he counted the number of embedded files. Then he subtracted, of course, uh, the number of images in the OneNote document. If something is left over, well, that's not an image. And uh, that's sort of what the rule does. Also important, of course, to know what the right uh, strings are that you have to look for that identify these different embedded uh, file types. And in recent years, small quadcopter uh, drones have become uh, really uh, popular. And of course, with that, there have also been problems with uh, these drones interfering, for example, with commercial air traffic. The market leader in this particular segment, DJI, did implement an interesting proprietary solution called Drone ID to help with this problem. Drone ID not only allows to locate the drone itself, which, for example, could be implemented just like uh, in aircrafts where the drone would sort of broadcast its position, but it also broadcasts the position of the operator. This feature is proprietary and the DJI, I believe, has a commercial solution that it sells that allows uh, governments, for example, to locate uh, drone operators. But a paper by the Ruhr University Bochum uh, now uh, did analyze uh, these drone ID radio frames and decoded them and showed how, well, as usual, simple off-the-shelf hardware like software-defined radios can be used uh, to decode these drone ID frames and locate the operator. This is uh, a bit more complex than some other sort of software-defined radio protocols because it uses both the 2 and 5 gigahertz of bands and switches sort of dynamically between the two depending on conditions. So uh, this particular uh, software and uh, device that they came up with does monitor all these frequencies and then uh, tries to identify automatically related frames. In addition, they also found a number of software vulnerabilities that uh, could be exploited by attackers in order to execute code on the drone and essentially also disable firmware or 
launch denial of service against drones. Aside from the entire use by hobbyists of these drones, of course, this has new significance in the last year where we saw these exact drones often being used in Ukraine by both sides. And of course, in that case, uh, being able to locate the operator with a GPS precision can be a rather critical issue. And then we got an interesting blog post by the security team from SaltStack. They found a vulnerability in the OAuth implementation at Booking.com. Now, Booking.com fixed it all quickly and is all good in that respect. So the reason I'm mentioning this is not here that Booking.com had this flaw, but uh, it is a flaw that uh, may affect other applications as well. OAuth, of course, being super popular these days for authentication and often not implemented quite correctly. The problem here is that, uh, well, uh, Booking.com does allow you to log in using Facebook, among other sources. And that's uh, not that uncommon. But what Booking.com did a little bit different here is after you come back from Facebook, it actually then uses the token that you present from Facebook to ask Facebook, well, you know, what user is associated with that token? And that's sort of how it authenticates you. The problem is that the URL it uses to connect to Facebook is provided as part of the initial response from Facebook by the user, and that URL is not verified. So an attacker could provide any URL and then, of course, have that URL respond to Booking.com with whatever user ID they would like to assume. So pretty neat little uh, trick here. And this is not how usually sort of this login with Facebook is necessarily implemented, but uh, likely that others have uh, similar implementations and with that similar issues. Well, with that, it's a Friday again. And uh, on Friday, we haven't had it for a while, but I have again a sans.edu student. Uh, this weekend, actually, I'm going for the commencement uh, this year for sans.edu. We have a record size class with undergraduate and graduate students uh, that graduate uh, this weekend. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, Marco, uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Thanks for having me, Johannes. I'm Marco Kveller and then I'm a master's degree candidate at the SANS Institute and I will hopefully graduate in the next two weeks. I'm working as a security analyst for about 10 years now. So. Okay, so quite a bit of experience. I really liked your uh, paper because it sort of addresses, I think, a current problem, something we're all just struggling a little bit with the Internet Storm Centers of the... What the Malware analysis. Can you talk a little bit about what your paper did here, how you address that problem? Yes. So I had actually the goal to find a gap in the sharing process of the cybersecurity community. And I thought that usually a lot of organizations do have access to spam emails with malicious attachments or malicious links, and they send it occasionally to a sandbox, but then they won't share it on a sharing pl platform like MISP. So my goal was there to close this gap with a self-developed tool, a malware analysis pipeline, which automatically does that. So I had three goals or actually four. So the first goal was to minimize the operation and the maintenance of the tool. 
which usually implies costs in a company or in an organization or even workforce resources. Second of all, I tried to minimize the attack surface. So I didn't program any web framework or even third-party tools which are exposed to the internet and could have vulnerabilities. And third of all, I tried to choose a plugin-based approach so that it's quite easy to adapt the tool in an organization or even further develop the tool. So last but not least, the whole process of analyzing phishing emails with attachments and then sharing the information in MISP was my main goal. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, one thing that a lot of organizations are struggling with here is also scale. Malware analysis, if you do it right, so if you do it the manual way, it's a very time-consuming process, also requires some special talent uh, to do. Your script is like all automated, or you just throw the malware in and you get the report out. Yes, right. So um, usually the malware analysis pipeline does parse the emails if there are any attachments uh, which are executables, they will be sent to the sandbox and afterwards the sandbox reports are then parsed automatically for C2 communication. And if there is any C2 communication, the information will be shared in MISP and also the sample itself will be shared on malwarebazaar.abuse.ch to help the community to find new attack vectors. Yeah, Malware Bazaar, for those who are not familiar with it, I see the little bit sort of as kind of competing with virus total, but one of the big things with Malware Bazaar is that you can actually download the samples without having pay sort of for them. They also have these nice daily uh, summaries, I think uh, they allow you to download. So, real nice uh, service here. The sandbox you're using, you used uh, Joe Sandbox, or uh, in your example. Yes, right. I used two sandboxes, actually, the um, Joe Sandbox from Switzerland and Triage, which is actually now um, recorded future, and it is US-based. So I use them only because they have researcher accounts and they have JSON output reports. That was the reason. So I didn't do any comparison of other sandboxes. The packet captures that you're then analyzing, they come from the sandbox or you're uh, collecting them separately? The packet captures come from the sandboxes and I run them through Suricata to find any evidence of malicious traffic. One thing I noticed in your report is that you had a reasonable large number of sort of unclassified samples. Like you looked at 500 different samples. There were like, you know, 100 or so odd uh, samples that weren't necessarily classified. Any idea what this was? Was this not really malware or Anything else happening here? Maybe some unknown malware? So I, I was actually collecting all the executables coming to our spam traps mm -hmm. and collected 500 samples and sent them to the sandbox. So there could have been legitimate tools which were sent to some um, end users, mm -hmm. but usually they were flagged as suspicious as well. So the sandbox usually knew that something is suspicious, but uh, they couldn't find out what kind of malware family it is, actually. The spam trap, can you talk a little bit about sort of how to set up a spam trap like this? Uh, not that we need more spam, but uh, how did you sort of go about collecting the samples? Sure. So we have spam traps in our organization. You can use, for example, people who leave the company. Uh, you can still use their email addresses and just collect the 
attachments out of the emails or for example if a department is closed in a company you still can uh, use the old domain or host name of this department and then send all the emails to this called spam trap one system that you mentioned at the beginning and i haven't really elaborated yet is misp misp is you know sort of this open source system to share Threat Intelligent, IOC. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of how MISP sits in and why you pick that uh, particular system? Yes, right. So MISP, the malware information sharing platform, is quite a de facto standard in Europe, at least. It isn't used uh, as heavy as in Europe in the US, I guess. But um, all the organizations in Europe are using MISP and it's an event-based sharing platform and each event can have multiple attributes and one attribute can be a malicious domain for example yeah and i recommend if people aren't familiar with that to definitely look at it because it makes it really easy then to connect sort of different misp systems to each other and sort of share threat intelligence i believe uh, the luxembourg cert uh, came up with that right? so misp was actually developed by the nato cert and the belgian cert and now it's mostly developed by one or two persons of the circle, uh, which is in Luxembourg. Okay, uh, great. Yeah, and uh, definitely a tool sort of to consider use. Are you still using the tool or are you still developing additional sort of plugins uh, for it? Yes, definitely. So what I did now between I finished the, the paper and and developed the tool, I did some further development for analyzing malicious other documents, for example, OneNote, which were used lately, heavily used lately uh, for de for deploying Qbot and all the other do Office documents, which are quite interesting as well, not only executables as written in the paper. Thanks uh, for joining me here, uh, Marco, and uh, well, great tool. Recommend uh, that uh, everybody is sort of uh, taking a look at the paper and taking a look at the tool. I'll uh, add uh, links uh, to the show notes. So uh, thanks for joining me here, Marco. Thank you. Well, and that's it for today. So thanks again for listening and talk to you again on Monday. Bye.